I'm Justin Peterson. And I'm Brian Lee. Welcome to the Voice Culture Podcast, where we traverse the rich historical legacy of voice training from the greatest minds and teachers of the art. Each episode features lively conversation, fascinating historical insights, and practical application for today's singer. Older learners. Yeah, so I just wrote a blog post about that. Yeah. And, uh, and what, what, what sparked it? Well, uh, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a thought I've been holding for a few days that, oh, I need to write about this. So uh, my last lesson was a week ago Thursday. And when I listen back to the lesson, uh, that's when I kind of remember, oh, what was my mindset during the lesson? And mm. how having listened to a lot of lessons of mine, I've sort of tried to hone how I behave in a lesson to make myself more receptive. So that's kind of mm. what it was about, about after you think you've seen it all, you know, and you're a little jaded and experienced as a teacher and singer, how do you open yourself up to teaching over and over again? You mean the experience of, of being the student or the, the experience of being the teacher or both? Being the student. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in this case, being the student. Mm. So, Especially when there's you have so much accumulated knowledge that there's a level of predictability to it. Yeah. In a way, right? Oh, right. You, you, you sort of stop the ability to surprise yourself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that I'm inferring here, but I think that's what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, well, sure. That's definitely... A part of it. I know for me, one of the issues is uh, when a teacher suggests something that they'd like me to do in a lesson, I need to make sure that I like to try to suspend the thought, oh, that hasn't worked for me before. Mm, mm-hmm. Because sometimes in context, in a new context, in a new time of your life, something you swear didn't work does work. And some things you thought worked right. don't really work. Right. And uh uh, that constant openness to where you are today as a learner, um, it, it, it's something that was way easier when I was 17 than it is now some 15 years later. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. I think about that, too. I think that, that, I think that ties into a lot of what people are talking about when we talk about mindfulness in a lesson. Right. Mm. Which we really don't talk about. But, or mm-hmm. if we do, we kind of dance around it a little bit. But the mm-hmm. idea of mindfulness is that you allow the experience to be as it is without any judgment of it or without wow. any sort of rationalization of it or, or, yeah. or determination of what it should be like or what should be happening. Right. I mean, yeah. this happens a lot in meditation, right? Well, my, I should be more Zen here. I should be more <laughs> relaxed. I should be more whatever. And the whole experience of your mind is that's not how your mind works. And that's just not how the mind works, right? The mind is always doing something, anticipating, listening, noticing, judging, yeah, forming an opinion. I mean, how would we expect that that would turn off in, in a lesson? It's interesting, you know, you say that because obviously meditation is fabulous, but one teacher that we know and love uh, would give the newspaper to students and have them read while they worked with the singer on their voice to somehow occupy the singer's mind on something peripheral. Yeah. Which I thought it's kind of really interesting. You know, take the newspaper and just say, okay, here, just read the newspaper so I can work with your voice. <laughs> because they just couldn't get to the person's, you know, they couldn't get past the mind. Right? I mean, 
it's, a, it's amazing. Um, those ones who will not let you through that barrier of thinking really are just almost impossible to teach. Right. I mean, yes, as teachers, we certainly can think of students we've had who were plenty smart and had no physical barriers to singing. Um, but, you know, that sort of old saying of too smart to, for their own good. Or yes, too, yes. You know, they, getting in their own way, you know, yes. big time. Well, yes, I think I'm, I remember growing up, my mother used to say, just, just enough knowledge to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? You're right. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that they're so intelligent and they're so smart and they know all the terms. But it's sort of like, a, what is an armchair quarterback? It's like you can know how the game is played, but it's one thing to then get on the, the, the field and start doing it. Yeah. That's why we always say, you and I always talk about knowing is not doing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But you're right. I always think about those directors, you know, in opera or in different musicals, who would say, you know, with an actor, an actor would maybe rebuff a, a director's suggestion about uh, something. And the actor would, you know, immediately before even trying it, would just say, oh, I, I don't want to do that. Or I don't like think I can do that. It, it, the directors that I always worked with would say, you know, just give it one or two tries before you give up on the idea. Yeah. Right. Before you just say, nope, I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. I think that's, uh, that's an important point in, in our observation of ourselves as we do something. Yeah. And our sort of, it's orals almost being able to let go of the result, right? What Alexander Technique talks about end gaining. Mm-hmm. This idea of, you know, who cares about exploration? Who cares about discovery? Who cares about finding something new? Oh, I mean, that's always threatening, isn't it? I mean, isn't it threatening if you find a way, a new way of doing something and you've been doing it an old way? And then all of a sudden, all those feelings of what? Anger or frustration come out because you're just like, why couldn't I have done, you know, why didn't I do this earlier? Or why didn't this work? Oh, yes. Or, think... or, or that's going to challenge my self-concept or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There have been times when I've, when I've felt like I've had some great successes uh, even recently, and I think, damn, why why didn't I get this 30 years mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the nature of continuing to be open to learning is that, yeah. you know, th- it, those feelings are going to come up. And mm-hmm. as a teacher, too, you know, going back to the oh. teaching side of things, you know, you have a set way of working with a student, and you'll have a time where some process you think is terrific doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Or on the other hand, a student will have a breakthrough that you didn't particularly cause. Right. <laughs> and you, but if you can accept and include it, totally, it can become part of you know the good work together. Totally, totally. So, that they have those epiphanies. That's yeah. Yeah. It's like oops, and it's sometimes in the. I I think too as teachers, you know, it, your your analogy or, or your thought process comes over to our side too because. We can oftentimes in the, in, the, in the doing of an exercise sort of regiment and sort of become robotic and mechanical in how we do exercises mm-hmm. rather than really stepping into that, again, that present moment yeah. to really notice what's going on. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm a person who's a big stickler on not doing things the same way in every lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't really feel that it's a, a successful, um, what, tack to sort of it sort of begs the idea that you already know what's going on in the voice. And so you've already got the answer before the question has really been asked. Right. I, I, I talk about a particular experience I had, uh, 
with a particular pedagogy where there was a sort of a, a repetition of the exact same exercises in the exact same order for every student that walked in the door. It was sort mm-hmm. of this regimentation of the exercises, and it was it was not that it, there was really an active listening to function per se. It was just sort of this rote mechanization of of exercise. And if you did the exercises or whatever, then that was the that was the achievement that you that you. Um, managed to get through <laughs> yeah. because it, 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 and I just thought, I sat there and I thought, you know, th- that was my first aha moment that pulled me more into a functional realm of voice teaching. Cause I thought this would be similar to a doctor who gives medication to all the same people, regardless of how they present and symptoms. So there wasn't a give and take of listening to the student in the, in the lesson mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or an observation of uh, what was really going on. It was this sort of predetermined form that the voice had to kind of fit into. Yeah. Right? I mean, it just kind of had to, here's, here's my concept of what your voice should be, so please put your voice into this box for me. It seems like a lot of the methods, the things that have been turned into methods, have been kind of heavy on that, that there mm-hmm. were certain, certain exercises to be done, you know, uh, certain modules to, to check off, mm-hmm. um, that you know, may not be the same for everyone. I I know there were a lot of occasions in music school, you know, I went through as an instrumentalist and um, most instrumental teachers will take a student's present way of doing things and technique and chip away at improving it. But as an accompanist in voice studios, uh, which I did a lot of undergrad and some grad school, um, I would see this this idea of tearing the whole house down mm. and rebuilding from scratch, which might be perfectly necessary, but you found some teachers tended to do that with everybody. All the time. <laughs> and right. some teachers never did right. that with anybody. And, right. and so it makes you wonder... Uh, how good well, it's an so invalidating. Is. It's so invalidating oh. as a student, yeah. Because you just feel like here you are, seventeen, eighteen years old. Maybe you've been studying for five years or more. If you're a really serious singer, maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I started when I was ten mm-hmm. years old in in voice lessons, and I mean, my goodness, to get to that point where you finally get before a teacher and they say, well, you know, everything you've learned has to be unlearned and you must relearn everything. You know, um, yeah. Uh, I think about, just like if you think about that in terms of building a house, my goodness. I mean, uh, what sort of circumstances do you really go through when you decide, okay, we really just need to tear the entire structure to the ground? Or or is it that, you know, when you put, let's say you're doing a, um, a scaffolding on a building, right? Well, you may have to re- remove that scaffolding to, that's supporting the structure gradually over time, lest the whole thing collapse. So... Yeah, I just I I mean and not and that's not to say that some houses don't have bad foundations and right that have to be yeah. it's a yeah. danger to the mm-hmm. structure of the home if it's mm-hmm. not, you know, if it's the, if the foundation is is mis um mislaid or whatever. But I don't think it's as relevant I don't think if it's it's as prevalent, I think as maybe some people would say. I also think there's an egocentric pull there, right? I think there's an egocentric yeah. pull in the teacher that says, "Oh, you must be restructured and I am only the person. I'm the only one." who can help you uh, to do this. You know? yeah. It sort of puts the onus on the uh, egocentri- egocentrism of the teacher saying, it's me and only me who can answer all of your questions. Which, of course, you know, for me, I, I 
pick up my coat and I run out the door. Oh yeah. Because I just feel like don't don't play me that way. You know that's yeah. that's not that's not ethical in any way. Yeah, right. like rebuilt in their image or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's, right. Right. It's yeah. It's it's. I mean, it can be an exciting thing if if there's real buy-in from the student. Yes. You can do anything with a student who is totally on board and understands the process you're about to engage in, you know. But um, I th- I'm thinking about, you mentioned about being led toward a functional way of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I've had a couple really difficult students, one in particular comes to mind right now, where he was constantly uh, bringing in repertoire he wasn't ready to sing mm. and trying to perform it out places and stuff and not having terrific success because he just wasn't quite ready to to do uh what he what he needed to do so we had a lesson which was essentially uh me showing him various vocal functions i'd say okay let's take this phrase here and let's talk about what the voice needs to do to make that phrase happen let's see Mm. let's see if it if it can be done and um in this case i it, it was kind of I, it got to sort of a battle of wills, which was very unfortunate because mm-hmm. he really wanted to charge ahead and do a very different kind of thing yeah. than I had to offer for him. Right. So right. He, he quit after that. Um, yeah. We'd been working together two or three years, and, and he quit after that because he just wasn't willing to understand that um, my approach would be to make his – to, to try to help him make his voice more capable of doing something easier. Yes. And he could plainly, we did agree that he was working very hard to do what he was doing. And that's why his throat got sore. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. Uh, uh, but sometimes it comes to that. Um, yeah. So, well, that's another whole, I mean, that's a whole other fascinating topic of overextension of one's abilities. Right. In yeah. terms of, yeah where one is at and and how we have to deal with that as teachers. How do you deal with the overeager student? Yeah. You know, who wants to be told, you know, tell me what to do. How can I get better? I have one of those now. Very young, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, But, you know, you want to also pace their development in accordance to their technical capability. Sure. (laughs) You know, and the, when the, when the artistic soul is bigger than the voice, that's always a challenge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. uh, always difficult because there is an artist in there there is a there is a communicative expressive person in there but the voice hasn't quite caught up to the soul right yeah the soul is there but which is great because it's nothing worse than having a great voice and no soul oh my gosh you know the the, i'd much rather have the the former than the latter oh yeah well Um, and it's really important to tell the student that you know when you when you recognize that phenomenon uh i think it's really helpful to the student to know that you recognize you know Yes. their 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 artistic soul and their ambitions and their their desire you know because yes. yes. cause if you if you acknowledge it and say i want to help you get there th- they're just so much more amenable to right teaching <laughs> yes 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 yeah yeah it is it is um a psychological part it's a psychological part of it yeah. to feel uh validated in that way that we as teachers we see it you know we see the, the the soul desiring to express itself i always i you know this is where though i come back to these these fitness analogies i just think you know you cannot lift more weight than you can lift 
and yet mm-hmm. we're singing, we sort of think, oh, we can. I just, it boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to go in and put, I don't know, I'm throwing out a number, 200 pounds uh, on a bench press, and you couldn't do the bench press, would, you know, would you be, how long would you be upset about that? Yeah. Right? If you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. So, but yet with singing, it's so funny the demand, the psychological relationship we have to singing, because it's still in our body. Yeah. And the voice is still our body. So either it's able to be, it's able to work or it's not able to work. But somehow with singing, we think we should work, it should work, and it should work now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I should be able to lift this 200 pounds, and I should be able to do it right now. I circle back to sports oh. all the freaking time, because yeah. cause even if they aren't athletes, they have some, most people have some sense of what athletes do and what's required, yes. you know, over time to develop an athlete. Yes. And, uh. And if they aren't athletes, I'm like, do something. Yeah. I mean, really, I always think it's a great correlation or correlative to your vocal studies to do another physical skill. Oh, yeah. Really, truly. I don't know. I don't care what it is, but do something else, whether that's, you know, a sport, gym work or something. Yep. Something physical, because you will see that the truths of mastery and development of yourself are applicable no matter what you are choosing to do. Oh, yeah. The principles and the application is the same. It's built on patience and yeah. built on cultivation, like we were saying. Mm-hmm. Well, as we always say, cultivation, time. You have to put in the energy. I've heard some voice teachers say they don't really like teaching dancers because their bodies are so taut oh, yeah. and tight. Yes. But I've actually enjoyed it because, yes, a lot of times th- there are certain you know parts of their physicality that are that are exerted too much. But they understand practice and discipline and time mm-hmm. and skill mm-hmm. building. Yes. Uh, viscerally. Absolutely. I would also say the same for my students who are into fitness in terms of bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. I once had a bodybuilder student. Yep. That he, that he didn't even blink at what I was saying and how I was thinking about training. Yeah. He was like, of course, absolutely. I, I, he had, he, there, was no, there was no difficulty to adopt or think about what that structure was going to look like and the discipline involved and the patience. And so when I you know, could break it down for him, he absolutely got on board. Because he understood that his own body wasn't built in a year mm-hmm. or two years or yep. three. It was a long, it had been a long-term process. So he was only ready to submit to that kind of discipline when it came to singing. Because he's like, oh, well, I've already done that. Yeah. You know, it's just in a different way. I said, yeah, you're training in a different way now. Because he was also, paradoxically, fantastically, a dancer. Oh. So he was a bodybuilder and a dancer. Mm-hmm. So he understood an artistic use of the body as well as an athletic use of the body. So, I mean, it was, you know, singing is just, hey, laid over those two things. Well, something just popped into my head. Speaking of artistry, uh, you have a lot more experience with acting training than I do. I have minimal. But would you say the development of an actor is the same? Like, like I think, you know, there's a tendency for people to think that, um, you you know, you become a star strictly by charisma charisma exactly right and yeah. and that that bleeds over into singing a lot too um but would you say that that successful actors have also worked on cultivating skills i would say absolutely um yeah. uh ivana chubbuck is a los angeles uh, acting teacher and uh she works with a lot of hollywood people and a lot of these stars go to they they take classes you know, they'll go into these acting classes, you know, classes and, and study and, and work uh-huh. on scenes and things. 
Um, I, I absolutely do. It's it's one of those things paradoxically that, like singing, it's, we're supposed to be invisible, right? We're, the teacher is supposed to be invisible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not to give yeah. the aura that the student just did it, like it just sort of they just emerged and it just sort of happened. Right. But no, I I think the um, you're right on the money, and I, you know I I come from a strain of of teaching that's uh, for acting training that comes very much through Uta Hagen. Uh, yeah. German-born mm-hmm. uh, American uh, acting teacher, and her method, which is really fabulous, I think this is such a fun, and this is why I love her so much, probably. But her parents were, uh, her father was uh, one of the first, um, I guess you could say, creators of the Göttingen Festival in Germany, which is the big Handel festival that they have, and it's been there since the twenties. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so Uta Hagen grew up in a home of musicians, and she grew up in a home of uh, opera singers, and so I mean, art and culture was to her like, you know, water and air. And her entire sort of methodology of acting, while based on self-observation, is based on a series of exercises that are 10 object exercises that go uh, from very simple to more complex as you go. And then you can sort of mix and match them. But the reason I like them so much is that they are really structured in the same way that artists who are musicians, for example, have scale work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the actor in that way can have a a means whereby they can do work even when they're not in a production per se, but they can continue to work on their acting craft. And so it's a, it's a life. I think a good actor, well, or a great actor is always hopefully working towards greater and greater development of their craft and their skill as, Mm -hmm. as an actor. So I don't think that that, I don't think any of that is ever set ever. That's fixed. interesting. I, I still need to read more Uta Hagen. You've recommended a couple of, of her books, which I have not finished the first one. But um, it's interesting to know more of that about her background. And yeah. uh, I had a fe- I, I got the feeling that, that, you know, there were processes of of uh, skill building and exercise yes, yes, yes. That, that were similar in principle. Yes, yes. You know? Her first exercise is called Destination. And it's a two-minute exercise wherein you observe... Well, first of all, the preparation is that you observe yourself in, in the pursuit of something for two minutes of time. Because one of the things that struck her struck her as an early teacher was that how little we're trained to observe ourselves and notice ah. the things that we do. And so the more self-observational we become as, as actors, per se, the more we can bring that to bear on a character. Because once we have understood what drives us through different behaviors we then can bring that onto the stage. But the first exercise is merely an observation of oneself in the pursuit of a simple task Mm -hmm. uh, and finding all of the things physically and psychologically that pull you to and from different things as you do them. Like, why am I going to this table? Why am I going over this bed? Why am I putting, you know, what am I doing putting my shoes on? What am I in the act of? Mm-hmm. Um, and the analogy that I think she uses in the book, which I think is brilliant, is imagine coming into your home. Just if, imagine if your home was a set and you were coming on, uh, coming home, and coming onto stage uh, from the outside world. What things would occupy you in the first two or three minutes of you just coming into your home? You know, dropping yeah. your keys down, dropping your bag. Where mm-hmm. do you drop your bag? Do you go to the bathroom right away? Do you pick the mail up? Do you drop the mail somewhere? I mean, all these little small little things that we never even notice in ourselves that we do. Yeah. Uh, that she really that was that that was the foundation of her work and of her I would say method, but her she mm-hmm. doesn't like that word, but the idea of of, of structuring the technique of her her work. Um, and it's fascinating because when you think about circumstances, that same scene would play very differently if it was the dead of winter versus summer. 
Mm-hmm. So you would be you would be completely a different person in those two moments based on the circumstances of just the weather, of just the weather changing. It would be a different entry. So finding those behaviors and wow. how you, you... Well, I used to think about this in terms of Tosca. This is like a little bit of a sidebar, but <laughs> the, the opera Tosca, right? Puccini wrote op, uh, Tosca, and it takes place in Rome, I think eighteen in the 1800s, early 1800s, during the Napoleonic Wars. And it's uh, in June. It takes place in June. And Rome in June is warm and hot. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the things that struck me is that, you know, the entrance of Tosca is not just an effort for the woman to come into the church, but it's also an effort for her to cool off because it's hot outside. And when you walk into those big Roman churches, they're colder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just finding the realities of what's truly happening in a situation can bring, again, that life into the scene. But actors you know, who work in at least in a Hagen way or Hagen focused uh, pedagogy really have to be self-observational. And so that's the skill that they develop mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. a lifetime. What, what do I do? How do I do? In fact, she would say, Uta Hagen would do something and then all the, immediately she'd have the desire to go back and like repeat it as if it was an exercise and say, let me just do exactly what I did one more time mm-hmm. to see how I did things, how I put all these things together and recreate this as if this was a scene. And I just thought, golly, that's brilliant. But that skill development is all predicated upon that idea of destination. What, how and why do you go and do the things that you do as a human being within the expanse of two or three minutes of time? She didn't want it to be longer because then what people start to do is they start to direct themselves. They start to make little mini plays. Yeah. And she says, it's not a mini play. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. little, it's a little scene of life, uh, you know, getting ready for a date. Uh, making your coffee in the morning, washing the dishes. I mean, any number of things that you do that are mundane that you never notice that suddenly bring to bear, why did I do it this way? And why did, you know, could I repeat this as if I did it again for the first time? So that uh, you really become very self-observational. And then you put that, and then and then moving on stage, because you have been sort of trained in that idea, doesn't, be, doesn't uh, become this daunting, well, why do I walk over there? What pulls me over there, you know, right. or why do I go sit at this desk? So the, uh, the, the work is, is a fascinating uh, study in oneself because I feel like sometimes in opera, we start at the end of a Hagen's work, right? We start with this historical imagination as our first get off because we're always working with historical characters, mostly in opera. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the hardest thing to get to. For Hagen, it was just saying, hey, Joe Bob, watch yourself here as you get off the bus and what do you do? Uh, when you walk in the house or how you, how do you get ready for a date or how do you get ready for bed or whatever? So you're really noticing yourself first. So before you do anything with a personage, that's not who you are. Yeah. You you learn to look at yourself and say, what do I do? How do I do it? So, um, you bring again, I think more humanity to what you're doing. An observation of your own humanity is a skill. Yeah. And that was kind of what her work was predicated on. That brings us full circle back to why I wrote that blog post <laughs> because you know the, the 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 skill of how you observe yourself the skill of how you work and being able to uh go from one perspective to another in the course of your own practice mm-hmm. is a, a thing I'm really interested in and I've I've talked about that on the blog before too about in practicing sometimes you have to uh run a piece from beginning to end uh and just go for it and turn off the critical voice. Mm-hmm. And learning how to do that is is quite challenging, especially when you're by yourself. It may be easier mm. in a way 
when you have people before you as an audience or whatever, if you have this, you know, urge to express, sometimes it's easier. But um, uh, I think practicing turning on and off the critical faculties and and uh, trying to find different uh, contexts for the same action. That's what was so interesting about what you just said. Mm. The idea that, oh, well, how is it different in January from June? Right. How is it different if you open the door and you hear your baby crying exactly. than if you're walking into an empty house? Exactly. And I, it's fascinating. I'm glad yeah, yeah. I asked about that acting <laughs> angle. We'll definitely yeah. talk about that some Oh, more. yeah. No, it's really wonderful. I think, you know, singers... Well, uh, this is said a lot, but I, you know, singers really should study acting. Acting, there's a, there's this sort of sing, yes. acting for singing or for acting that's just kind of like this, you know, what furtive uh, attempt, you know, at, at at what acting is. I think you really have to be a human being as best we can on stage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I also find that you know, there's an, to me, there's an interrelationship between acting and musicianship. I really believe it. I do believe. Oh, it. I, I do think too. The more a person is. Uh, a good actor can be musical without singing, and a good singer mm-hmm. can be uh, a good actor without acting. Is that, I don't know if I did that right, but you get the idea that the expressiveness doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily tie itself to a particular type of performance, in my opinion. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think one of the things that when I see a play, for example, if I go see a straight play, I like the play if it's musical. In other words, if the way that the scenes unfold are are good and... Uh, like watching jazz, or I've often said, or like a fire. It's like wa- watching a burning fire. It's like it's exciting and it's it's engaging mm-hmm. and it has a musical quality to it. Good theater to me, when it's just straight theater, has a musical quality. Mm, Highs, lows, loud, soft, yeah, staccato, legato. All of those things come into play. I feel sorry for though. I always tell my actor friends, I feel sorry for them because they have to write their score. The opera singer or the musical theater performer, the music's already written. Mm-hmm. We know how a scene will unfold in tempo. We know how a scene will unfold in pitch and volume because it's been indicated Yeah, within certain limits. Right. The actor has nothing but words, nothing but text. Mm-hmm. And they literally, I mean, I think they do have the harder job. They have to create a score, a literal musical score out of mm-hmm. nothing yes. yeah. but words. So I think that, and it's interesting because when an actor is in, I've, I've spoken to actors who are in that world, they find it very difficult to go into the musical world because they feel constrained. Yeah, right? I would imagine. Because, because it's someone else's tempo, it's someone else's, uh, you know, they don't want to deliver the line that way. Well, sorry, buddy, it's written that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't, you can't renegotiate the pitches here. Uh, so it's a really interesting model uh, in each in each in its way. But I think that the actor, actor, I think has the harder job. And we were lucky. We get to show up and, oh, here's the scene and here's how it's going to go and here's how it's going to unfold in that yeah. way. It's already been written. It's already yeah. been, The music has been written for us. I mean, obviously we have to interpret it, but uh, we don't have to write it. You know, I think that's part of why in my own singing, like over time, I love being on stage in a stage production. Like I've had so much fun in musicals, especially in musicals. I've had big roles in opera. I've just mostly done chorus. Mm. Uh, And then uh, but I think the older I get, the more I like the smaller and smaller scale forces Mm -hmm. uh, to now where what I like best is just singing with a piano mm-hmm. you know cabaret or right what you might call recital but where where you can explore a whole bunch more freedom with oh yes the, with the things like you know you have more say you have yes. a large, larger domain over 
over the tempo and uh, the loudness and the um, the way it's gonna go and the storytelling really yeah, in a way right I mean it's right. your it's your event I I think one of the reasons I always loved to do recitals in school was because they were so close to what I did as a young singer when I sang country western music with bands mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a concert of music and you stand there and you tell the stories of these characters and you tell them mm-hmm. you sing the music. So, and I know a lot of singers don't like that. A lot of singers like to hide behind a character, not hide, but, you know, stand behind a character and sort of do that. Mm -hmm. And the idea of being in a recital situation can be really daunting because there's no, nothing to hide. It's just you and the audience. Yeah. And so for someone who grows up in a more concert oriented um, performance genre, uh, that's, that's how you do it. I mean, especially like for me growing up, you know, in the church, I mean, my goodness, you sing on Sunday and then there they people are, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like they're all standing there and you just sing and here we go, you know, and the opera performer, the musical theater performer may find that very daunting because suddenly they're stripped of character. They're stripped of, you know, mo- oh, movement on the yeah. stage, costume, costume, the whole thing. Direction. So it's like, Ooh, I'm naked. Yeah. I feel so naked, you know, and it's, but honestly, that's kind of why it's so great because it is just you, right? It is just you and your song and. Yeah. What do you have to sing? And it's really, yeah, it, it, to me, it's the, it is the singing act. Oh, yeah. To me. Well, also, what to sing. I mean, right, right. I, get, I get just excited as hell over forming a set list, you know, putting things together. Uh, oh, yeah. You, you know, you get, you, you can take, you know, 10, three and four minute musical works Mm-hmm. And you put them together however you want, and and it's it can be so magical, and 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 it could be, you know, whether it's thematic or not. But the fact that it's stuff that is really close to you and speaks to you, that then you can speak to other people in a really authentic way. So I wish we would go well. I mean, maybe we are going that way, but I love that idea of recital structuring. You know, especially in an academic sense where people sort of have to do it as part of their degree fulfillment. Yeah. To think about the overall artistic effect of the recital rather than just, well, I have to do this recital because it's going to fulfill a requirement for my degree and ha, he, he, who, you know, but for example, I don't know, like um, someone I read somewhere was doing a recital that's coming out. It was sort of their coming out. And I thought, whoa, how cool is that? And Jeez. like pick, picking repertoire to sort of like make that journey in oneself. Wow. Ha, I thought, wow, talk about a powerful experience right as a as a performer and an audience oh my gosh yeah but you know an art some sort of artistic experience that's beyond the realm of the normal sort of oh stiff rigid academic sort of bad recital experience yeah it just has to be trudged through like everything else like your you know common stuff we can definitely spend a session or two talking about that (laughs) (laughs) but uh because yeah. it could be revived. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, it's, it's well. Yeah. I think right now we have more opportunity. I mean, the, I see. I see so much more interest lately for song recitals, cabaret, intimate things because oh, yes. of this separation from the mm-hmm. pandemic. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, the and the and the one's personal autonomy as an artist. Yeah. In all ways. Yeah. That you know these opera singers are figuring out. Oh, I got to do this on my own, and how do I create an artistic experience? by myself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that's great yeah because really i'm all about artistic ownership own your artistry and whatever you do own it yeah it belongs to you you are the artist so yeah i think it's i think it's wonderful really i mean 
I think it's a fantastic opportunity for people to really dive into the, the, the true reason why they sang. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today on the Voice Culture Podcast. For more information, connect with us on our website, thevoiceculture.com. <laughs>